0: I am so excited to bring you the third episode of season four of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist and critical race theory podcast that follows me, Yvette Borja, in my journey as a movement lawyer in southern Arizona. This podcast is audio archiving the fierce resistance happening in the southern Arizona borderlands and is bringing you the leftist critical analysis that you need for all the relevant law and politics that are happening today. On this episode, I interviewed professor, author, and criminal defense lawyer Dean String about his book. Keep the Wretches in Order, America's Biggest Mass Trial, The Rise of the Justice Department, and The Fall of the IWW. You might have seen Dean Strang featured in the Netflix documentary about the Stephen Avery story of being falsely accused of murder and Dean Strang's defense of Stephen Avery. But in this episode, interview, we discussed the connection between the federal government's dismantling of the IWW union, also known as the Wobblies, and the growth of the Department of Justice. What an insidious connection. The Bisbee deportations of 1917, a little-known event in which immigrants who were unionizing with the IWW were forcibly and illegally deported to the New Mexico territory for their unionizing and we unpack contemporary anti-union sentiment. If you want to support Radio Cachimbona, the best way to do so is to become a patron. Through the patron you will get first access to the season 4 episodes and exclusive access to the lit reviews. The lit reviews are a special patron-only segment where I bring on fierce women of color to discuss timely texts over wine. We had a great selec- we have a great selection for season four and it's already gotten going. And so I hope that you become a patron and join that community. And, you know, I didn't really know about Patreon before I started podcasting, and I know that it can feel like a strange thing to get into, but it really is just so critical for supporting independent media. And after the Trump era and the kind of the delegitimization of the mainstream media, both, you know, warranted and not in some ways based on Trump's rhetoric, but this, it it, this political moment has caused intense distrust in mainstream media and we know that mainstream media is corrupted as well just based on the consolidation of major news companies that essentially are run by a few very wealthy individuals. And I think it's pretty exciting that we've seen the growth of other podcasts like the Bad Faith podcast for example or Five Four, that y'all might listen to where podcasting has been able to be a full-time endeavor for those folks and something that sustains them in their livelihoods and allows them to bring really critical content. And that's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well. So it's really exciting because with the Patreon, it's like a lot of little donations that can add up to something sustainable. So I encourage you all to do that. But I understand as well that times are hard and... If you don't have the monetary means at this time to support the podcast, the best, best way is to write an Apple podcast rating and review, sharing what you love about the podcast. In 2021, there has not been a review. There have been two ratings, which gave me five stars. Thank you so much. But it really helps also to have that kind of more detailed review for folks to be able to read and mull over. Please also follow Radio Cachimbona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Cachimbona where I try to continue the conversations that I'm having on the podcast with you all. So I think that is everything I wanted to communicate. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Bye. Chimbonas. I am very excited today to have Professor Dean Strang here. He is a criminal defense lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin, and is also a professor at the law schools of the University of Wisconsin and Marquette University. He was featured in the Netflix series, Making a Murderer, as part of Stephen Avery's defense team. And He also wrote Keep the Wretches in Order, America's Biggest Mass Trial, the Rise of the Justice Department, and the Fall of the IWW. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Yvette, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So to start, I wanted to ask you to break down the connection between the birth and growth of the DOJ and the mass trial against the wobblies that you portray in the book?
1: Well, let's, let's go back to sort of the beginning, right, of, of the U.S. Constitution and the structure of the U.S. government after 1789. The Constitution didn't, didn't provide for even an attorney general in Article II right. when, it cre- when it created the executive branch, but but the first Congress did in the Judiciary Act of 1789. It created the Attorney General's office and it also created what were then called United States District Attorneys. Today we call them United States Attorneys. But in creating the Office of the Attorney General, Congress didn't create a Department of Justice. There was no Justice Department. The Attorney General really had only two jobs. One was to represent the United States in the Supreme Court, which at most was an occasional duty back in the late 18th century. And two, to advise the President as a lawyer might on public legal questions. The prosecution of such very few federal crimes as there were was left to the United States district attorneys in all of the different judicial districts of the country and and each one of them operated independently they weren't overseen right. by the attorney general and so that's how things stood in until 1870 you know it's 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 over 80 years into the life of of the federal government that congress creates a justice department and and puts the attorney general in charge of it and then gives the attorney general some oversight over these presidentially appointed federal prosecutors out in every district in the country and even then in 1870 when the you know when we the congress finally created the justice department it didn't give federal prosecutors a salary they operated essentially on a bounty system. They got a a percentage of court fees and fines that were collected by the federal courts. It wasn't until 1896 that Congress set up a salary, public salary, for United States district attorneys and their assistants. So with that background, by the time you get the Justice Department indicting four Large groups of uh, members of the industrial workers of the world in 1917. The department's been around for less than 50 years. Mm-hmm. Its prosecutors' fed salaries were just just over 20 years in 1917, and the and the federal government never really has taken on at that point any. Really huge, or national undertaking, as a you know, as a matter of judicial enforcement or judicial legal strategy in that sense. You right. know, the federal government's role in trying to suppress unions or suppress radical groups and ideas <clears throat> really had been either military or quasi-military, right? Before before these indictments um, in 1917 and the the largest group of those indicted and most of the leadership of the iwW or the wobblies as you correctly refer to them that was their nickname both by the way a pejorative nickname and a fond nickname it was oh. both supporters and detractors of the iwW used wobbly but they meant different things by it. So that the largest group and most of the leadership of the IWW was indicted in the Chicago indictment, which is also the one that went to trial first. The government wanted that to be the centerpiece of its effort to destroy the IWW. Um, and, And so that's really what's significant about the emergence of the Justice Department is not only is this the largest mass trial ever attempted before or since in a civilian US court but it's it's the debut if you will of the justice department as a significant actor rather than the military or state militias in trying to um in this case control or destroy uh Perceived radicals who were, I mean, the, the immediate sort of impetus for these four indictments was the perceived role of the IWW in opposing and potentially blocking um, the scale up of the United States to join World War I mm-hmm. in, in join the European war in 1917, the IWW was seen as the principal obstacle in the United States to the war effort after April, early April 1917, when Congress declared war. And so this was a, a legalistic effort to to destroy that union in courts rather than at bayonet point on the streets. And I, I, I argue in the book that it it really is a turning point in the emergence of the modern department of justice which we we who were born in the 20th century or some who you know born in the 21st century and might be in your audience you mm-hmm. you know we sort of reflexively think of the justice department as the response to national threats or to really significant right. acts of domestic terror or foreign terror, or, you know, uh, big crimes, you know, big mm-hmm. problems, uh, to the extent they're viewed as legal problems. Now, we expect we'll end up in federal court and handled by the Justice Department. That just wasn't always so. I mean, indeed, 100 years ago, that would not have been the expectation at all and in this Chicago trial of the Wobblies and then the three other related cases that were part of a coordinated strategy by the Justice Department that I think really was the inflection point that changed the role of the department and how Americans perceive that role.
0: Right. So there was a switch as you say to a legalistic tactic to taking down the wobblies. Although it the prosecutors engaged in a lot of very questionable conduct. Uh, for example, many of the people who were charged, indicted and convicted were done so for speech and writings that had occurred prior to the statute that they were being criminalized under. And in US law, there's this longstanding principle of Someone needing to be aware of the fact that they are committing a crime, and um, there's retroactivity can't be applied, so that um, the U.S. government can't put a law into place and then retroactively claim that you committed a crime. But that's what occurred here. How how was that possible here?
1: Well, you make a you make a very good distinction. Or I want to make sure that your listeners grasp the distinction you're making, which is to say that this was a legalistic strategy doesn't mean it was a lawful strategy. Okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that that the government adhered to the US Constitution or or to law. Uh, at all points in the prosecution and and in fact in the process it departed from the 4th amendment and arguably from the ex post facto clause which you're describing as you know preventing uh retroactive application of new criminal statutes um so that 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 is an important distinction and um the the way the government got around at least the retroactivity problem or you know, as lawyers would say, the ex post facto problem that you're describing accurately was through using conspiracy charges. And let me explain that, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, There were five counts in the Chicago indictment. All five of them were conspiracy charges. There were no completed offenses. Mm -hmm. Alleged in that indictment at all. A conspiracy is just an agreement of two or more people to commit a crime to one or more particular crimes. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's always been viewed in, in, you know, in the English speaking tradition, it's been viewed as an incomplete crime. It's an agreement between two or more people to, to go forward and commit or complete some crime but it's not a completed crime in itself uh-huh. it's in a sense a thought crime as yeah. long as somebody takes you know at least some step in per, in pursuance of the agreement so how does that help the government get around the awkward fact that a lot of the specific acts that the 166 defendants in the chicago indictment were alleged to have taken came before enactment of the statute under which they were being prosecuted, which was the Espionage Act of 1917. How can they be prosecuted for letters or editorials, speeches that they gave before the Espionage Act was even enacted? And and the answer was that as long as the conspiracy, as long as the agreement, To violate provisions of the Espionage Act continued until some point after the Act took effect, the entirety of the conspiracy could be proven in support of the charge, even though theoretically only, you know, it was only the acts after the effective date of the Espionage Act that would have allowed prosecution at all but because it's a conspiracy you take in the entire scope and time frame of the agreement that's the legal theory okay and one of the things i i had to decide in writing this book was how much to focus on use and abuse of conspiracy laws
0: Yeah. Um, I think that's huge. I liked, I liked that you unpacked that.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, I did talk about it, but I, but I honestly, I didn't make it a major theme of the book. You know, the sort of major theme was the overall injustice that was done here in a number of ways Mm -hmm. to almost everybody who was tried and convicted in Chicago. But the, the, the abuse of conspiracy laws is a, is a secondary theme in the book, but Mm -hmm. you have put your finger on how that enabled the government essentially to go back and retroactively prosecute words, uh, speeches, written word that wasn't even arguably criminal, under federal law at least, Mm -hmm. at the time the speeches were given or the letters were written or the newspapers were published. Um, And I gotta, I gotta tell you, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't very long after the 1918 wobbly trial in Chicago Federal Court on that 1917 indictment that the Federal Department of Justice was so routinely using conspiracy charges in its indictments That you have a very famous federal judge by the middle of the 1920s, rightly describing conspiracy as the darling of the modern prosecutor's nursery, (laughs) sort of colorful terms. And that was not some left-wing judge. That was Learned Hand, who was a judicial. How did
0: I know that was going to be who you were going to quote?
1: (laughs) (laughs) He, he was a judicial conservative all his life. Yeah. Um, apart from you know how he may have voted in the ballot box, he was very much a judicial conservative. Mm-hmm. But even, even learned at hand, recognized by the mid-1920s, that it was just de rigueur for federal prosecutors to lead with these expansive conspiracy charges that not only can get you around statute of limitations problems or retroactivity problems, but also can ensnare an enormous number of little players, bit players, people with very minor roles, if any really active role in whatever the alleged criminal enterprise was. So, you know, you, you could write more than one entire book on the use and abuse or misuse of conspiracy statutes, and it's an American thing. You know, it, we yes. we didn't invent the idea of the incomplete crime of conspiracy, but it has come into its own in this country, at least among English-speaking countries. We are aggressive and regular users of conspiracy. Uh, statutes and especially in federal court that remains as true in 2021 as it would have been in 1921. Maybe more true today.
0: Right. Yeah, actually, that's a perfect transition because I was going to point out that unfortunately, this is not a trend that ended. Uh, It's ongoing. And we saw saw this, for example, when post 9-11, prosecutors were bringing similar theories and legal charges under the same statutes that you discuss in the book. How do you think that the similar carriages of misjustice occurred so many years after the fact? Why did we not learn from the Wobbly trial? Well,
1: uh, we could go on for a long time on that, but I can give you some fragmentary thoughts that are mine. Uh, one, whether in a in a highly sort of political prosecution like the IWW prosecutions or the prosecutions of the late 1940s and early 1950s of suspected or actual Communist Party members or Vietnam War protesters and student radicals in the 60s and 70s and, you know, on up to um, uh, Muslims in the early 21st century and late, late 20th century in, you know, in all of those political prosecutions and in many prosecutions that are much more mundane or commonplace, uh, drug prosecutions, for example, um, you're talking about highly unpopular defendants. You're talking about people who are outgrouped. Yeah. You know who are who are very much in the status of the other, mm-hmm. um, either because of their uh, assumed or actual political beliefs, or because of their religious beliefs, or because of their ethnic origins, or because the they're alleged to be involved in just conduct that most people view as abhorrent, large scale sale of of illegal drugs, you know, mm-hmm. for example, or organized crime. And so, you know, these, these are then, these are disfavored, alienated people about whom there's, when for whom there's very little public sympathy, whether we're talking wobblies in 1917, when, you know, the, the country has just gone to war, we're awash in patriotic fervor and nationalism then because 1917 were at the tail end of what had been at that up till that time the greatest wave of immigration in US history uh, and so there's a lot of resentment of newcomers um you know from from Europe primarily um and and I say Europe primarily because you know, we'd we'd had an absolute exclusion of Chinese immigrants in yes. place since the 1870s, for example, just outright xenophobic or you know nationalistic concern. So, you know, so you've got highly disfavored people against whom these conspiracy prosecutions typically are are used. Um, and you know, I think another another piece of this is. It's so tempting, you know, for judges and prosecutors to argue that that the agreement to commit a crime is itself something that exacerbates the risk of criminal activity that makes it likely that other collateral crimes will be committed and that group criminal activity is more dangerous than individual. Criminal activity. So the the malleability of the conspiracy statutes just makes them very tempting to prosecutors, and also to judges who very often are aligned, at least in sympathy with prosecutors. Right. You know. So I could go on, like I say. I mean, we could we could talk for hours about that. But um, the the you know. Conspiracy charges just in their, I've used the term malleability, their and that that's right, and their expansiveness and often vagueness. Yes. And their their ability to allow you to indict 20 people when it's really two you're after, and then and then try to approach the 18 small players to see if they will become government witnesses against you know, the, the two most sought targets, it, it, it just pragmatically or practically, conspiracy charges are irresistible um, to to prosecutors or have proven that way. Um, and as I say, that's very much as true today, whether we look at the sort of politicized or idealized, you know, ideological kind of prosecutions, um, or whether we look at the more pedestrian prosecutions for, you know, um, which makes think of as more ordinary
0: mm-hmm. crime. So to brush up my memory of conspiracy, a conspiracy requires an agreement to commit a crime and then a substantial act. And the substantial act does not need to be a completed crime. That's why it's an incomplete crime.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the substantial act doesn't really have to be so substantial. It just needs to be something clearly in furtherance of the of the illegal objective. So that act itself might be perfectly legal.
0: Right. That's so counterintuitive.
1: If you and I I make an agreement to rob a bank and then one of us goes out to a store and buys two ski masks that we're going to use to conceal our identity when we go into the bank. That's an overt act, as it's called. That's an act in furtherance of the agreement, the conspiracy to commit bank robbery. There's nothing illegal about buying two ski masks. Mm -hmm. People do it all the time. But if the government can prove that you and I had an agreement to rob a bank and conceal our identities, now just buying the ski masks becomes all that's essential to convict us um for conspiracy to commit bank robbery.
0: Right. And in these cases the overt acts that were committed were speeches written or speeches given or generally like written written or spoken.
1: Yes. Acts. Yeah, letters exchanged among the defendants, um editorial comment in you know the IWW publications the IWW was really a, a remarkable and transformative union and uh-huh. by 1917 it its weekly publications were in 14 different languages wow so you know it it actively sort of proselytized and and propagandized it advanced its its message to the world in a number of different languages, as I just said. And yeah, those those letters, those editorials, and those speeches on the stump or at labor rallies uh, were the you know the great body of the evidence that the government offered at the trial in Chicago.
0: Wow. So the, the thought crime aspect of this and also the, the encouraging of evading the draft charge reminded me of the, of the recent Snending smith SCOTUS case that was looking at whether or not there was a First Amendment problem with a statute that makes it illegal to encourage someone to stay in the U.S. unauthorized. And the ways in which it's been used um, by prosecutors has been to prosecute. One example that was given was that somebody told her housekeeper that if she stayed, she I don't I actually don't remember the exact words, but it was literally like, I hope I hope that you can stay. I I don't I don't remember, but Mm -hmm. the specifics of it, but it was. I found it quite similar in terms of the, the wide breadth and scope with which it can be applied and how how it's actually being applied. Um, do you see any similarities here between how the prosecutions went for the Wobblies and the statute at issue in the Snenning-Smith case?
1: Some, yes, yeah, some, and Senning smith um, is a really interesting decision in some ways. It, it it came down about a year ago, if I recall right, from the U.S. Supreme Court, as you said, and you know it had, it had come out of the Ninth Circuit, which, mm-hmm. as, as you as you know, <clears throat> in recent years or even recent decades, has been sort of um, uh, the the bad boy child. <laughs> <laughs> in the view of the US Supreme Court, among the, the, the 12 federal circuits, the Ninth Circuit always seems to be the one in the corner serving with a timeout, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> um, it's viewed skeptically by the conservative Supreme Court that we've had yeah. in, in recent decades, and what what happened in Senening Smith, as I understand, is um, the the, the Ms. Smith was convicted of federal crimes. She ran ran or runs, an immigration consulting uh, service in California. And you know, she was alleged to have sort of defrauded her clients, although the government's theory was that she was really encouraging illegal immigration. You know, she was encouraging undocumented people to remain in the United States. Yeah. Uh, So they weren't so the government wasn't so worried about her allegedly defrauding her clients as it was about, you know, encouraging uh, working people to stay in the United States without Mm -hmm. you know papers the U.S. government says you have to have. And um, so her, she appealed her conviction up to the. U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And that court essentially, as I understand it, that court said essentially, look, you know, both the defendant and the government are kind of missing the biggest issue in this case. And the court asked friends of the court, you know, what are what are called amici curiae in Latin, friends of the court, to file briefs on the speech issues that, that you're raising, Yvette. And then the court ruled for Ms. Sunenning-Smith on the basis of that First Amendment concern that the statute under which she was prosecuted was overbroad and it it punished speech that's protected by the First Amendment. And so the government asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case and the court said it would. And the court then, the US Supreme Court then doesn't reach the merits last spring when it decides the case. Rather, it swats the Ninth Circuit again saying, look, you know, we have a principle in our law that the parties in a lawsuit get to frame the issues. Mm -hmm. They get to come to court and say, here are the one, two, three, four, whatever it is, issues that, that we want the court to decide. They get to frame what the what the dispute is about on appeal and what the supreme court said the ninth circuit did wrong is that it 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 went out on its own it went freelancing looking for issues that the parties had not raised and maybe they should have but they didn't and so it sent the case back to the ninth circuit a year ago saying look decide the appeal that the party said they were bringing. you know decide the issues they raised, not issues you know you you want to decide on your own. Mm-hmm. and it the, the, the principle is called party presentation you know in in our in our legal doctrine. So it's kind of a wonky procedural ruling that the Supreme Court handed down in the spring of 2020. I don't think the Ninth Circuit has yet reissued a new opinion oh. deciding the case. It was the case was sent back to the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco by the US Supreme Court. And that Ninth Circuit was told, all right, decide the case again, but this time deciding the issues the parties have presented to you. And I don't think the Ninth Circuit yet has done that, which, and I don't, I don't mean that to sound Strange or extraordinary. It's not at all uncommon for a case to be pending for a year or something in a court of appeals. That's not strange at all. And the court may have invited supplemental briefing. I don't know. But it it will be interesting to see ultimately if a court can get to the merits on that First Amendment claim that you may not like what Evelyn Sinning. Smith was urging, or you may not like her views about what clients of her firm should do or what the immigration laws should be, mm-hmm. but can you punish them criminally under the First Amendment? Or are you sweeping in a good deal of protected speech that is not directly aiding and abetting what right. the federal government calls illegal entry or illegal, illegally remaining in the United States? without you know submitting to inspection at the border or the proper immigration documents
0: right yeah thank you for that thank you for breaking that down um so my i'm based in Arizona and the podcast does focus on Arizona happenings and so i um was i it was good to see um the the story of the Bisbee deportations of the IWW workers I had previously been exposed to this story through a documentary called the Bisbee 17 yes where okay yes (laughs) and thought the story was very wild and could not believe that American citizens you know of European origin which shouldn't matter but are generally more protected were deported in in the 1900s and then I read the book and I was like, okay, well, I guess these things weren't that uncommon. Um, and so I just wanted you to break down for the listeners the what happened with the Bisbee deportations of the IWW workers, and how were those workers connected to the mass trial?
1: Yeah, I, I'm like you, Yvette, and, and you discovered the Bisbee deportation, as it's referred to, earlier in life than I did. I... I had actually heard of Bisbee, Arizona because years ago in the, in the mid nineties, I was at a, you know, a criminal defense training program and met a public defender from Bisbee, Arizona. She practiced in Bisbee. And so I had heard of this town down near the Mexican border, uh, you know, in uh, Southern Arizona, but until much later than that, I had never heard of what happened on July 12, 1917 in Bisbee, Arizona, which, as you say, was the day that before sunrise, the two major mining companies that essentially ran Bisbee at the time. Now, Bisbee is a little tiny town. It's it's hardly over 5,000 people today, I think probably was bigger in 1917, it's in the Mule Mountains It it, it, at the time had rich copper and lead deposits. So it was a mining bonanza town, right? It was a frontier town with money potentially to be made by mine owners, at least, and jobs for miners who were willing to go down and do the hard work of uh, extracting this ore from the rock underground. And uh, because Bisbee was such a big mining town and had these two dominant, huge mining corporations that owned most of the mines and that really controlled the politics of the town, the IWW thought it uh, a good place to be and to try to recruit members. Mm. And remember the IWW really had grown out of the old Western Federation of Miners.
0: Oh, right.
1: Mining had been the, the original sort of focus, industrial focus of the IWW. Now it, it spread to many more industries than that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was sort of its genius is that it, it organized workers by industry rather than by skill or trade by occupation, but but its roots were in mining, right? And so it was trying to organize miners in Bisbee as it was all across the West and Southwest. And the Anaconda Copper Company and the Phelps Dodge Corporation, and it had just about enough of this. And so on, on you know, early the morning of July 12, 1917, the corporations had prevailed upon the sheriff who who had been elected with the support of the mining companies Hmm. uh, to deputize almost 2,000 citizens um, to just round up, go house to house before the sun was up, rounding up miners who were either members of the IWW, or for many more of them, just suspected of being Mm -hmm. labor activists, sympathetic to unions, not sympathetic to the employers. And 1,200 people were rousted out of bed or taken from their kitchens and marched at bayonet point and gunpoint to railroad cars that were parked on the tracks right outside of Bisbee, They were herded onto freight cars, cattle cars and other freight cars. These weren't passenger cars. Uh -uh. Herded on there in heat that was, as you can imagine, in Uh Southern Arizona in the middle of July.
0: Oh God, that's the worst time, that's awful.
1: Yeah, heat that was over (laughs) hundred degrees by the early hours of the day and loaded onto these freight cars. The doors were locked closed. There was water, but no food on the train. And off the train went to the east with these 1,200 people, many of them citizens, others immigrants, all of them minors, and just suspected of being disloyal to the employers. Mm -hmm. And off the train went some hundreds of miles to the east, and it stopped in the middle of the New Mexico desert. Not accidentally near a US Army camp in southern New Mexico. Because remember, we're we're back then in, in 1917, we're still having border skirmishes with right. people crossing the Mexican border into Texas yeah. and New Mexico, Pancho Villa, and you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, that all all that. That's still going on. So there's a US Army presence down in along the border at the time. Sound familiar? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. and,
1: and so the train stops and the, the, the people are let out of the train. Uh, and now they've got a choice. They can walk without food or significant water through the desert in the July heat. Walk anywhere they want to go and hope they survive. Or they can go to the army camp. Most of them went to the army camp where at least they were fed mm-hmm. um, and given shelter, but they were also penned. They were they were treated as, as captives and eventually released when they could make arrangements to travel. But they never went back to their homes in Bisbee. Oh. They simply lost their belongings, lost their homes, uh, lost their livelihood and their jobs. Um, it was just it was a forceful, forcible, uh, if not ethnic cleansing that it, then at least ideological cleansing, um, if you will. Um, and yeah, the documentary is quirky and interesting that you're describing. <laughs> yeah. But this is a really little known and overlooked, ugly, ugly chapter in American, history and one to which the courts said essentially were powerless to respond
0: wow to the to the bisbee deportation
1: yep yeah there were some efforts who, who to who
0: challenged it, it there,
1: were, there were efforts by individuals to seek recompense, recompense later oh,
0: wow. and
1: in court and the courts simply said, it's over, there's nothing we can do. And it wasn't quote, government action or state action. When the reality of course was the, that it was. Yes, the mining companies were behind it and the sheriff and his deputized throngs uh, were behind it, but they had, they had machine guns that the US Army had supplied Right. And they had the active assistance of the army, because again, it was no accident that the train stopped in the middle of the New Mexico desert near this army camp. Right. Um, but, you know, n- nobody got any relief, as lawyers like to say, right? Nobody got any relief, any damages, court actions.
0: Wow. Well, I it heartens me that people challenge that at least because right, right the, they did just they being able to leave their... New Mexico is a feat in and of itself, alive.
1: Yeah, and 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 most you know, I I don't know if anybody who actually died, I, I you know they would have uh, some of them if they had just tra- tried to trek across the desert without right. without food or water, they were in a you know in a really remote area that the train stopped. Um, They survived, but, you know, think about just being rousted out of your bed at sunrise and marched at gunpoint with nothing but the clothes on your back for the great crime of having supported a union. Right. Or challenged your employer over wages and working conditions.
0: You mentioned uh, that one of the innovations of the Wobblies was that they organized people by industry and not just by occupation. They This is what the one big union concept that is frequently referenced with the Wobblies is about. Can you break that down for us? Why was that such a big deal?
1: Well, sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to place the origins of a labor movement in the united states or right. in, you know in any other country exactly but middle of the 19th century right middle of the 1800s you see efforts to organize workers and what that had always meant you know whether it was the knights of labor or other early efforts to form trade unions or guilds what that had meant was first of all men Okay. Mm -hmm. Organizing male workers and, and usually white, you know, people of European or Scandinavian ancestry, and then organizing them by their skill, by their trade. So bricklayers organized, you know, as masons or as bricklayers and steelworkers as steelworkers and carpenters as carpenters and that kind of thing, and so the, there there came to be sort of a hierarchy within the labor movement, you know, on the, with the skilled trades up above the semi-skilled trades, and then the unskilled trades at the bottom, right? And the the, the innovation of the IWW was to recognize, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, when we fracture labor when we fracture working people that way and create these hierarchies among them with their unions or their or their guilds really all that's doing is helping employers helping capital because you know if 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 out of every dollar that goes to capital there's a nickel to be shared with labor so to speak now you've got these different small unions each fighting for the same nickel uh uh rather than binding together, seeing a collective interest of employees and trying to turn the nickel into a dime
0: Uh
1: or a quarter. Okay, so that that was the idea is let's, let's stop organizing workers by their, their job by their occupation, and start organizing them by industry. Uh So miners have a community of interest. Doesn't matter whether you're mining silver, you know, or copper or lead or what what you're extracting. You as a miner share a community of interest with every other miner. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Montana or you're in Nevada, you have a community of interest with other miners. If you're a farm worker, you you share a community of interest. And again, that doesn't matter whether you're in South Dakota or Kansas, you're a farm worker, you're a steel worker, you're an iron worker, you work in the marine industries, you know, either on ship or on the docks, you have a community of interest. And so the the IWW tried to organize by industry, by broad industry, and then bring those industries together under one umbrella and say, we are all working people. Mm-hmm. We share everything in common with each other and we share nothing in common with capital. Mm-hmm. So from the from the beginning, from 1905, if you had even one employee, if you employed even one person, you were not eligible to join the IWW. Right. But if you were employed, if you were an employee, it didn't matter in what industry or how big your employer was. And interestingly, it didn't matter what your sex was or Mm -hmm. what your race or ethnicity was. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's 1905, (laughs) it's the early 1900s. There's casual and grotesque racism you know, in the ranks of the IWW mm-hmm. and sexism. But, but if, if, we, if we can consider it in the context of the time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: women were welcomed to be members of the IWW from its inception. Indeed, mm-hmm. some of the significant organizers, founders of the IWW were women. Yeah. Mother Jones, for example, just, just to give one example. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was the only woman indicted originally in the Chicago indictment, the case against her was dropped before trial but um, and if you were of African descent, you were welcome in the same locals as the white workers. Mm -hmm. If you were from Mexico, if you were from Central America, if you were from Finland, if you were from Ireland, it didn't matter, you were welcome. And there was no formal segregation within the locals of the IWW or its leadership. And indeed, in the early 1900s, there were locals where the secretary, which was the highest position in the mm-hmm. IWW at the local level or the national level, where the secretary was African-American. You know, it, it was, for its day, it was a remarkably integrated Labor union, and 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 also welcomed women. Again, you, we have to understand that <laughs> with the just, as I say, sort of casual and overt racism and sexism that that pervaded um, the culture then, but in that context, nonetheless, the IWW looked decades ahead of other trade unions of the day, decades ahead of where the AFL was, for example, which was the, right. the American Federation of Labor run by Samuel Gompers was the mainline sort of traditional umbrella of the more typical unions associated, that were organized by craft or trade.
0: Hmm. I think that this idea of one big union is really useful for lawyers to think through because <clears throat> In, i've been having conversations with with certain lawyers about why unionizing is important for us and the the biggest pushback that i've gotten is this really weird elitist idea that we can't be in a union with other non-lawyers because our interests are different and our, our we have ethical obligations we're a profession uh we're a, we're skilled worker i think it's kind of like we're skilled workers, and it's been a bit upsetting that because of the elitism in the profession and people internalizing that they don't see themselves as exploitable workers, when even though we're in a non- maybe especially because we're at nonprofits, we definitely are, and. I or should
1: know. be and and should be an alliance with other workers yeah. who yes. are exploited. You know, I mean, yes. and and that I think that's part of how capital, so to speak, has has succeeded in fracturing the labor movement. Is you know, with with really quite successful efforts to appeal to working people as future capitalists you know
0: that, right. that
1: if you cast your lot with us um your day your day of wealth will come too you know mm-hmm. uh who's the canadian who's the canadian sociologist who said one of the problems in the united states with socialism you know why it's never really deeply taken root in the united states is that that the culture in the United States is that nobody's really a member of the working class. We're right. all just temporarily embarrassed millionaires.
0: You know?
1: right. i'm I'm right. paraphrasing, and I don't remember the name of the of the Canadian sociologist who said that, but he'd sort of put his finger on on something peculiar to life in the United States for more than the you know the last hundred and fifty years, which is, that getting working people to sort of ally themselves with capital rather than with other working people has been a very successful strategy on the part of of business you know what we, we today would would call big business or corporate interests. you know they've just been very successful at persuading working people that they will do better trusting, the benevolence of the corporation or their employer or capital generally than they will uh, banding together and, you know, and trusting labor union. I mean, we've seen that as recently as a week or two ago with the, the unionizing Amazon. effort in the Alabama Amazon facility apparently failing um, by a wide margin.
0: Right. So the federal government obviously was very involved in dismantling the IWW, and now union membership is at its lowest it's ever been. And as you say, we just had a really uh, troubling Amazon vote that was anti-union. What anti-union forces are at play today that people are so anti-union? I mean, like I said, I even have to I have to convince the progressives of that a union is important and good. Well, how did we get here?
1: I, you know, I can't pretend to be able to answer that in any kind of comprehensive way. But I can point to sort of the fundaments of mm-hmm. this, you mm-hmm. and I as wage earners, or salary earners, okay, first of right. all, you know, first of all, we may enjoy a bit of just personal prosperity. Our, our salaries often look pretty good compared, especially mm-hmm. to the rest of the world, you know, to mm-hmm. the standard of living, you see workers elsewhere in most of the world. So we don't, we don't feel particularly put upon or exploited. Many of us right. don't, right? And moreover, though, to the extent that we see ourselves as having a collective interest as employees, as workers, as the people who produce capital, Uh rather than who control capital, to the extent we see ourselves that way, our individual stakes are pretty small. And there's lots of us, you know, there's lots of workers. And your individual stake is pretty small, and my individual stake is pretty small. Whereas employers are smaller in number. And, you know, if you're Amazon, you've got billions of dollars potentially at stake over the long haul, certainly hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. at stake. If unions come in and and engage in work stoppages or the threat of work stoppages and drive up wages beyond what you want to pay or drive up employee benefits beyond beyond what you want to offer, you've got millions, hundreds of millions over time, billions of dollars at risk from the perspective of Amazon. You and I, if we get a $3 an hour raise, which is a lot Uh probably for an Amazon warehouse worker,
0: Uh
1: you know, so now our pay goes up 120, 150 bucks a week or whatever it goes up, right? It's not nothing, but it's not millions. And we've got a whole lot of other workers in the same situation. So we have a collective action problem, you and I do, yes. because
0: yeah, and know, that's exacerbated by the right to work states, which Arizona, yeah, all, all
1: these all, right to work laws, uh, anti, you know, checkoff laws, uh, laws that make it harder for unions to collect dues or to communicate with members, they're all designed to exploit this collective action problem, okay? Because when you and I are numerous and we have individually fairly small stakes, my incentive is to have you pay, you know, you bear the cost of yeah. improving the wages, yeah. right? Because I'll get the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I can get the benefit of the pay raise without paying union dues, my incentive is to do exactly that and to let you pay the dues, right? Or bear the cost, in other words, of that. Mm-hmm. And, and overcoming that free rider problem, as, a, you know, as an economist would call it, <laughs> is very, very difficult mm-hmm. when you've got lots and lots of people who individually, again, have relatively modest stakes in the outcome. If you're Amazon and you're owned by Jeff Bezos and maybe a few others, and you've got hundreds of millions of dollars at stake, it's much easier to yeah. sort of organize to defend those much larger interests of a much smaller group of people. You face few, fewer barriers to collective action with, with a smaller group and much more money potentially at stake. And, and I think all of the the anti-union legislation that you see is designed to exploit exactly that difference in collective action um, efficacy you know and to exploit free rider problems that unions have um in in getting working people to to Spend 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month or whatever the dues are and attend meetings because that carries an economic cost too, right? Going to union meetings is time you could be doing something else. Identifying yourself by wearing a, a pin supporting the union, a button supporting the union at work carries a cost from an, economic, an, an economist standpoint, because now the employer knows who you are
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and may target you or take adverse action against you or ostracize you in some way. All of these things are costs, so to speak, even if they're not re- readily monetized.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that makes collective action break down when we're talking about large numbers of working people. So I you know that those are just sort of fundamental ideas but I think if you look at right to work legislation if you look at US Supreme Court decisions on the duty of fair representation which requires the union to act on behalf of every member of the bargaining unit even if they're not a member of the union or not contributing their dues right. in a timely way or fair share payments in a timely way If you look at statutes that forbid employers from checking off and withholding dues payments from paychecks and funneling them back to the unions, you look at all those things, they're designed to exacerbate the barriers to collective action that unions and employees face.
0: Right. And I want to remind everyone that it is their legal right to unionize and it is their legal right to concert and gather with their coworkers <laughs> so that it they is. don't get so that they don't get unmotivated by
1: this. <laughs> no, 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 it is. It is their legal right. And it requires a certain selflessness and I think a recognition, the free rider problem that I'm talking about. And then unless we all step up together, everybody's gonna lose.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a really good note to end on. Is there, those are all the questions that I had, but is there anything that you wanted to address that you feel like we didn't get to touch on?
1: No, I I, I want to thank you for a really, to me, very engaging interview and for taking the time to talk to me about my book. Uh, my, that was my second book, but I mean, it's my most yes. recent book. And um, I'm really honored that that you did it. Eva, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, well, thank you for being on the podcast and for being an inspiration, showing me that I can be a lawyer and an author. <laughs> All right, thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.